The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. In this episode, I'm going to examine successive search warrant submissions and the notion of judge shopping. In the search warrant context, judge shopping is seen as a police officer attempting to obtain a judge more favorable to their position so that a search warrant will be granted. For example, it has been suggested that the police judge shop when they submit a previously rejected search warrant application before a different judge in the hopes that this new judge will see the information presented in a different way and authorize the warrant. Some argue this is an abusive process that subverts the judicial system. But does it? Well, let's look at a case that speaks to this issue. In RV Bond, cited as 2021 ONCA 730, the police received information from four confidential informers that led them to believe Andrew Bond was dealing cocaine from an apartment in Toronto and was habitually armed with a semi-automatic handgun. Three of these informers had proved reliable in the past, but one had never previously provided information to the police. Using location pings from a cell tower to Bond's cell phone and database searches and surveillance, police found three locations associated with Bond where he was suspected of dealing cocaine. He also had a lengthy criminal record. The police subsequently applied to a justice for three search warrants relating to a residential apartment, a commercial condominium unit, and a vehicle a green Honda Accord. At 2.32 p.m. that day, the justice denied the warrants and provided the following four reasons for doing so. Number one, the relied upon confidential informer information was dated and there was no indication when the information given was actually observed or how or when it was acquired. Number two, the ITO indicated the information provided was corroborated in each case yet not all information was clear on the corroborating details. Number three, the Appendix A items to be seized was too broad and the ITO lacked supporting information to provide a nexus. And number four, there were insufficient reasonable grounds to believe that the items to be seized would be at the specific location. Later the same day, the police submitted the same ITO to a second judge at the Ontario Court of Justice. The only addition to the ITO was a single paragraph which disclosed that the warrant application had been previously submitted and had been refused by a justice. And the reasons for the refusal were included in the ITO. Two hours and 48 minutes later, at 5.20 p.m., the second judge granted the warrants. All three warrants were then executed. At the residential apartment, police found Bond inside and he was arrested. He had apparently been sleeping on a couch in the living room. Among the items the police discovered included property linking Bond to the apartment, cocaine, and cocaine paraphernalia. When police searched the commercial condo unit, they found property linking Bond to that premises, a loaded firearm and ammunition, and enough cocaine to infer that it was possessed for the purpose of trafficking. As for the car, no material evidence was found. 
So when this went to trial in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Bond made several arguments about the validity of the searches, including a claim that the police impermissibly judge shop. But the trial judge rejected this assertion. He concluded that the police disclosed the prior request for the warrants when they made the second request, including that the warrants were rejected and the reasons for the rejection. This, the trial judge said, was not impermissible judge shopping. In fact, the trial judge found it was within the issuing judge's discretion to decide the new warrant request, and he did so on full and fair information. So how did the trial end? Not well for Bond. He was found guilty of possessing 613 grams of cocaine for the purpose of trafficking, illegal possession of a loaded semi-automatic handgun, and other related offenses. The judge called him an armed drug dealer who had an extensive prior criminal record, including prior firearms convictions. And at the time of these offenses, Bond was subject to three separate firearms prohibitions. Bond was sentenced to 11 years in prison, less credit of two years and 11 months for pretrial custody. A resultant sentence of eight years and one month was yet to be served. Bond did not give up, though. He appealed to a three-judge panel of the Ontario Court of Appeal. He claimed the trial judge made several mistakes, including the finding that the search warrants were valid. In Bond's view, the decision of the first justice to deny the warrants was final and binding, unless and until it had been overturned by a higher court. And since a justice, as the word is used in section 47 of the criminal code, is defined as a justice of the peace or a judge of the provincial court, the judge who signed the warrant was not a higher judicial official than the justice of the peace who initially refused it. Bond said that when the police applied for the warrants on the same information to a different judge of the same court, the police committed impermissible judge shopping, which struck at the core of the judicial system and undermined the high level of confidence placed in it. What do you think the Court of Appeal ruled? Well, like the trial judge, it rejected this argument, and here is why. Number one. There is no bright-line rule that the police cannot make a second application for a warrant if the first application is rejected. Standing alone, just because the police apply successively for search warrants does not render such a procedure an abusive process or a subversion of the judicial system. Each case will depend on its own facts, but depending on those facts, there could be circumstances within the search warrant process that could amount to an abuse. Number two. There is no appeal from the initial refusal of a search warrant application, and a second judge considering whether to grant a search warrant is not sitting on an appeal of the first judge's decision, nor are they reviewing that judge's decision. Even when a judge knows of the previous application for a search warrant, they are exercising their own discretion. It is a new hearing. The second judge is making their own decision about whether to grant the warrant or not. Number three. While the initial refusal of a search warrant does play a role and should be considered by the second judge, the fact the warrant request has been rejected is not determinative of the second request. Number four, when the materials are submitted for the second search warrant application, the officer should ensure the ITO includes the particulars of the earlier refusal, including the time, name of the judicial officer, and the reasons of refusal a copy of any reason or endorsement provided by the judicial officer who refused the warrant should also be an appendix to the ITO. And this was done in this case. Number five, the different judge hearing the second application should not be specifically selected and sought out by the police. 
Instead, the second judicial officer should be the one on call. So what about this case? Did the procedure of applying successively for search warrants amount to an abusive process or a subversion of the judicial system? Short answer, no. The disclosure to the second judge of the previous refusal and the reasons for that refusal ensured the openness and transparency of the process that Bond himself suggested was lacking. As the Court of Appeal noted, quote, The second application judge, who issued the search warrant, was fully apprised of the previous application, its timing, the fact that it had been rejected, and the reasons for the rejection. He was well positioned to consider the application de novo. End quote. De novo means anew, afresh, again, or from the beginning. The second search warrant application in this case, based on the same materials, did not amount to judge shopping. The trial judge's ruling affirming the validity of the second search warrant was not improper. Now, this entire appeal was not a lost cause for Bond. He also appealed his sentence. Remember, he was sentenced to 11 years, less 2 years, 11 months for pretrial custody. But he wanted more time carved off of his sentence. Well, he got his wish. Sort of. The Crown agreed the trial judge made a mistake in calculating credit for pretrial custody. So a whopping 70 days of additional credit for pretrial custody was deducted from his sentence. So why am I talking about this 2021 case now? Well, Bond tried to appeal his case all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. He wanted the top court to weigh in and decide whether the police can bring a successive application for a search warrant on the same facts before another judicial officer. But about a week ago, on February 23, 2023, the Supreme Court denied him leave. This means they did not want to hear the matter. And true to form, the court did not provide reasons for dismissing Bond's leave application. Of course, denying leave is different than agreeing with the appellate court's decision, although some people may see leave being denied as an endorsement of it. But that is not always the case. We just don't know. So maybe in the future, a similar case will make its way before the Supreme Court for a full hearing. And since we're on the topic, I wanted to mention a similar case out of the B.C. Court of Appeal, cited as R.V. Ducherer and Oaks, 2006, BCCA 171. In that case, a police officer received an anonymous Crime Stoppers tip of a marijuana grow operation consisting of about 20 plants growing in a hydroponic environment behind a trap door in the basement of a residence. About two weeks after receiving the tip, the officer drove to the residence and walked the perimeter of the property. He noted pipes in the ground apparently emerging from the basement of the residence, which in his experience were often used for fresh air transfer from indoor grow operations. The officer also believed the electricity consumption at the residence during the preceding months was comparatively higher than two other similar-sized homes in the neighborhood. About a month after receiving the tip and 16 days after attending the residence, the officer submitted a search warrant application by fax within an accompanying 22-paragraph ITO to the Judicial Justice Center. This search warrant application was rejected by a justice with the following noted in a fax transmission. Quote, denied, one, no conviction for previous alleged grow, two, source info dated and does not have reliable history with police, three, pipes suspicious, four, hydro strong but insufficient corroborative info to issue, please feel free to reapply with more info, end quote. Rather than conduct further investigation or resubmit a new or amended ITO with more information, 
the officer added three paragraphs of submissions to the information. These paragraphs explained the reasons for the warrant's rejection by the justice and explained why the officer believed the justice was wrong in denying the application. I'm going to read one of the paragraphs that was added by the officer. See what you think. Would you school the reader in this manner if you disagreed with the decision of a judge to reject your warrant? So here is what the officer wrote. Quote, it is my submission that the information contained in paragraphs 1 to 22, inclusive, is sufficient to meet the definition of reasonable grounds required by Section 11 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and Section 487 of the Criminal Code. The justice's contention that a conviction was required for her to consider the information of a previous marijuana growing operation at the residence appears to stray from my sworn fact that the marijuana grow operation existed in fact. The justice classifies the source information as being dated when in fact it was received only one month prior to my authorization request. I would submit that the corroboration disclosed in paragraphs 8, 10, 13, and 15 strengthens the weight of the anonymous source's information and gives it some measure of reliability. The justice is correct in stating that the information contained in paragraphs 10 and 11 referring to the existence of protruding pipes from the residence constitutes suspicion. I contend that comment on the pipes is nevertheless valid since I did not rely solely on this evidence to base my beliefs. Finally, the justice's comment about the strength of the information referring to high hydro readings should act to weigh in favor of authorizing a search. I submit that corroboration is not at issue. The high readings stand as a matter of fact. End quote. Sounds like this affiant knew about and understood the law in this area. The officer then applied for the warrant again with his added commentary before a different judge and a search warrant under Section 11 of the CDSA was granted. When the warrant was executed, the police found about 150 marijuana plants in various stages of growth in two rooms hidden behind plywood barriers. In addition, hydroponic growing equipment indicative of a relatively sophisticated commercial operation was found. The plants and equipment were seized and Dale Ducherer and Lana Oaks were arrested. When this went to trial, a voir dire was held into the validity of the search warrant. The trial judge found the officer's additional three paragraphs of submissions to his ITO was an effort to persuade the judge that the justice had erred, and therefore the officer was clearly seeking a review of the justice's decision to reject the ITO, something which exceeded the second judge's jurisdiction. The trial judge went on to hold that the officer had two options. Number one, he could have obtained more and better information and resubmitted the ITO. Or two, he could have sought judicial review in the Supreme Court. Since the officer did neither, the trial judge ruled the search warrant was invalid. The ensuing search of the residence was therefore warrantless and breached Section 8 of the Charter. The trial judge then went on to exclude all of the evidence. Of course, without evidence, both accused were acquitted. Now, the Crown wasn't happy with this decision. It appealed the trial judge's ruling that the search warrant was invalid to the B.C. Court of Appeal. But the defense continued to take the position that once there was a decision by a justice denying the warrant, there was no authority allowing a hearing of the same matter on the same material by another justice. So you can more fully understand the reasoning, I will tell you the outcome of the appeal first. The BC Court of Appeal did find the trial judge blew it, and here is why. Number 1. The second search warrant application before the judge was a hearing de novo, not a review of the discretion of the first judge. Does this de novo term sound familiar? Despite no new information being added to the ITO, the second warrant application was not a review or appeal of the initial justice's refusal to issue the warrant. 
The second judge was not governed by the initial refusal, nor were they sitting in an appellant capacity. The second justice was exercising their own discretion and judgment. There was no doubt the officer wanted a result different than that obtained from the first justice who denied the warrant, but the officer properly disclosed the initial refusal of the application. And the additional three paragraphs of submissions added by the officer did not transform the second application into a review of the first justice's decision. Number two, a justice can lawfully hear an application for a search warrant based on the same material that was before another justice who rejected the application. There is no process for reviewing the denial of a search warrant if the affiant believes the justice erred in not granting it for lack of reasonable grounds. Successive applications based on the same material affords the necessary opportunity for an independent exercise of discretion to correct such an error. The BC Court of Appeal allowed the Crown's appeal. The acquittals imposed by the trial judge were set aside and a new trial was ordered. Now these cases involve other issues in addition to that which I highlighted in this episode. I would encourage you to read both of these cases and the underlying trial judgments. Links are provided to the appeal court decisions in the episode notes. So what are some of the lessons we can learn from all of this? First, a judicial officer considering a successive warrant application is not sitting on appeal or in review of the decision of the justice who declined to issue the warrant. The justice's decision to deny the first search warrant is a discrete application, but it does not bind the second judge. So when the police applied on the same material to a second judge, that second judge was free to make a de novo decision without regard for the denying justice's view of the material. Instead, the second judge was considering the search warrant application afresh, and in doing so was exercising their own discretion. The second justice is not obligated to alter their belief to conform with the first justice's opinion. Therefore, a justice does have the jurisdiction to entertain a search warrant on the same material that another justice has refused to grant. Second, reapplying for a search warrant that has been previously denied is not in itself an abusive process, even if the application is based upon the same materials. However, to avoid an allegation of abusive process, the procedure outlined by an Ontario Superior Court of Justice in a 2014 case indexed as R.V. Campbell provides some very useful guidance. Here are the steps the judge proposed in the Campbell case. Number one, upon refusal, the officer should consult with senior colleagues to determine if additional information could be obtained to strengthen the application. Number two, before submitting the exact same ITO, the police should consult with the Crown about whether such action would be appropriate. Such consultation should take place unless there are exigent circumstances requiring immediate action. Number three, in submitting the materials, the officer should ensure the ITO includes the particulars of the earlier refusal, including the time, a name of the judicial officer, and the reasons of refusal. Number four, a copy of any reason or endorsement provided by the judicial officer who refused the warrant should be an appendix to the ITO. Number five, ensure the second judicial officer is the judicial officer who is on call. The officer should not select a particular judicial official, but follow the procedure for contacting whoever is next on call. And number six, if the second judicial official refuses the application, the officer should not resubmit the same ITO. The officer should only submit a new application if there is additional information in the new ITO. Now, not all of this guidance is binding precedent, but it is sound advice. And if you note, the Ontario Court of Appeal, in the bond decision, referenced some of this guidance, particularly the requirement to ensure the new ITO includes the particulars of the earlier refusal, including the time, 
name of the judicial official, and the reasons of refusal, and to attach as an appendix to the ITO a copy of any reason or endorsement provided by the judicial official who refused the warrant. Third, if a second justice does grant the warrant, the entire process can be reviewed at a subsequent trial. Remember, a trial judge has the ability to review whether there were grounds to issue the warrant. But the trial judge does not ask whether they would have issued the warrant. This review is not a de novo hearing. Instead of substituting their own opinion on the sufficiency of grounds, the trial judge is supposed to ask whether there was any basis upon which the authorizing justice could be satisfied that reasonable grounds existed. Fourth, none of these courts are saying that a police officer can reapply for a warrant three, five, or ten times, or until the officer gets the decision they want. So don't read this decision as endorsing unlimited warrant applications on the same information until you get it signed. Finally, all of this is not to say that a search warrant cannot be challenged in superior court by way of certiorari, which I'll refer to as simply cert. Cert is where a higher court reviews the decision of a lower court. But cert is not an appeal. A writ or order of cert is a remedy that can be used by a superior court to quash a decision of a lower court for lack of jurisdiction. And in 2018, the Supreme Court of Canada, in R.V. Awashish, called cert an extraordinary remedy that is available only in narrow circumstances. That's when the judge makes a decision outside their power to make. It cannot be used to correct a legal error. For example, when a judge makes a decision within their power to make, but does so incorrectly. So in a search warrant matter, cert does not allow a superior court to substitute its discretion for that of the justice. Remember, cert challenges jurisdiction. So here is an unusual example of cert related to a search warrant. It's a case from 1972 and is cited as Laporte versus the Queen. When Roger Laporte was arrested on an unrelated matter, the police came to have reason to believe he had been involved in a holdup that occurred about a year and a half earlier in which gunfire was exchanged with the police. He had scars on his neck and shoulder which resembled bullet wounds. And x-rays revealed the presence in his shoulder of a foreign body a metallic object corresponding in size and shape to a 38 caliber slug. This foreign body was so deeply embedded in the flesh that it could not be felt by simple tactile examination. To remove it would require more than minor or superficial surgery, so the police sought a search warrant under Section 443 of the Criminal Code, now Section 487, which authorized a search of Laporte's body for one or more bullets that were allegedly fired by police during the holdup. The warrant that was issued authorized surgery upon Laporte, to have the bullets removed and seized, but if in the course of such search the doctors determined that there was any serious danger to Laporte's life, the search had to stop. Now Laporte applied for cert in superior court to quash and set aside the search warrant. The judge concluded there was no jurisdiction arising from the criminal code or elsewhere for a justice to issue a warrant to search the interior of a living human body. The search warrant provision under review authorized the issuance of a warrant to search a building, receptacle, or place. The judge found a living human body was clearly not a building or a receptacle within the meaning of the term. Nor could the word place, on its plain construction and in everyday language, be held to extend to or include the interior of a living human body. The word place refers to a geographic location, not an anatomical one. Here is how the judge summed it up. Quote, in my view, the justice had no jurisdiction, either by statute or at common law, 
to issue this warrant, and it is my duty to interfere and prevent what I can only describe as a grotesque perversion of the machinery of justice and an unwarranted invasion upon the basic inviolability of the human person, end quote. So the search warrant that was issued was quashed and set aside as illegal, having been issued without jurisdiction. So as you can see, this case was about jurisdiction. Whether or not the search warrant provision relied upon could be used to search the interior of a living human body. It was not about whether reasonable grounds existed or not. Now I want to leave you with one final observation. Whether or not the standard of reasonable grounds has been met to justify the issuance of a search warrant is sometimes not all that easy to determine. I am reminded of the Supreme Court of Canada decision in R.V. Morelli, where a panel of seven judges was split on whether the reasonable grounds threshold had been achieved. Four judges concluded that the ITO did not disclose reasonable grounds for the search and seizure of Morelli's computer, while three judges upheld the warrant. This isn't all that unusual. The case law is replete with split decisions of this nature at the appellate level. So is it really any surprise that you can submit the same search warrant application to different judges and have them reach different conclusions? Certainly didn't surprise me. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you'll feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.